live from the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. We are gold. And heard around the world by metalheads just like you. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Heavy metal music. Your weekly dose of metal music. Interviews, album reviews, news, and more. Want to be part of the show? Send us a message through our website, MetalMayhemROC.com. Or hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Search Metal Mayhem ROC. A proud member of the Pantheon podcast team. It's getting nice and heavy. Now, welcome our hosts, John the Vernomatic Verno. Direct from New Jersey, Metal Walt, and from the band Motor Lord, Ian O'Rourke. Good evening, everybody. As always, new content drops Thursday nights. Welcome to November. It's the holiday season, and we're excited to bring you another edition of our running series, Rock and Roll Detention. Tonight, the topic, replacement singers in the 90s. Powerhouses Iron Maiden, Motley Crue, Judas Priest, Anthrax, These bands all attempted to continue in the 90s with new lead singers. (laughs) That's a big task, and they gave it their best shot. Well, Metal Walt, Ian O'Rourke, and a new member of our crew, Vinyl Vince McDowell from New Jersey, they tackle this issue. They talk about the albums, the particular singers, the landscape of the 90s metal scene. You know, and here we are. It's in the mid-90s. Things are upside down. Uh, Tons of different genres are buying to be the top bill. So this is a good one. But before we get into this, just want to remind you, get up to our website, MetalMayhemROC.com. Join our community by signing up for the newsletter. Recent audio podcast we have up there. Last week, we had War Curse. A couple weeks ago, Sirith Ungle. We had a Power Trip review. And then we had uh, Rick Emmett, a Triumph. Tommy Victor of Prong. Udo Dirkschneider. All these episodes are up in the drop-down box, and you can go back, listen to them, do us a favor, subscribe to the pod, leave us a review, that kind of stuff. All right, well, let's get into this. Rock and roll detention. Replacement singers in the 90s. I'm the Vernomatic, and this is Metal Mayhem ROC. Ah, look, you're back in detention. Got it. But this time, you won't be throwing pencils up into the ceiling tiles the entire time. Don't mess with the bull, young man. You'll get the horn. Your proctors expect you to be on your worst behavior as they give you remedial instruction in the history of hard rock and metal. You going to school? Hey, settle down. Here's Metal Walt and Ian O'Rourke with your rock and roll detention. Good evening, everyone. On today's new episode of Rock and Roll Detention... We're going back to the 90s to have a look into the major metal bands who replaced their singers. Anthrax, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, and Motley Crue. There are others, but these are the big four. So we're going to go deep. We're going to look at the good, the bad, and everything else in between. But first, joining me on tonight's episode are two of our correspondents uh, from the band Motor Lord, Ian O'Rourke. Ian, how are you? What's going on, brother? Glad to be back with you. Absolutely. Things are going well in the in the Motor Lord, uh, Motor Lord land. You guys played a couple shows recently. Yeah, we're kind of we're running the gauntlet a little bit. We got like four shows stretched out over a month. So it's almost like every other weekend for a, a bit there. It's it's been crazy, but it's been fun. We're having a good time doing it. That's super. And joining us back? on his virgin Metal Mayhem ROC run, his heavy metal debut on the podcast. Also nice. from New Jersey, Vinyl Vince McDowell Vince. Welcome to Metal Mayhem ROC. I'm excited. Vince is an expert. He and I go back 
30 something years from our college fraternity days. And we've seen a lot of metal shows way back then and up to now. Vince, uh, welcome to the team. So, hey, guys, tonight, um, this is something we've been talking about for a long time. And, uh, you know, there was a period of time in the 90s, and we've covered this in our History of Heavy Metal series on a lot of the individual years, that this was a changing time for metal music. And I think you look back in time and you say, man, there are four major bands that we all love. We still love to this day that uh, they made bold moves. This wasn't, you know, replacing a drummer or bass player. This was going front and center to the singer. But um, and just like what what was going on in the 90s around that time with the scene? Well, you know, like we had talked on the history of metal, you know, early 90s. It's right around the same time when grunge was starting to poke its head up and jump into the scene. You saw that shift, you know, that post Guns N' Roses, post Injustice for All, everything started getting darker and heavier. There was more of a grit. There was more of a a street. There was more uh, something. And then grunge kind of came in and that kind of cultivated even more of this brooding kind of sound. So as you started ushering in bands like Pantera and you had, you know, Skid Row, you know, Jersey alum, you know, that you are aware of um, some of these other bands that were coming through, you could see how things were shifting and the, the temperament changed like bands that weren't as heavy started getting heavier and bands that were like thrashy and fast all of a sudden started adopting some of that groove laden, slower brooding metal. Uh, you know, you know, was it, um, you know, the, the, to coin the term groove metal, as some people have, I mean, it kind of did fit the mark, you know, so I think that, you know, when we go into at least one or two of these bands that we're going to discuss, you can definitely see how that came to be. Yeah. And and listen, we lived through this period of time, right? We're all kids of the 80s listening oh, to the yeah. hair bands. I mean, Vince, you and I were in college together. And we lived this. We saw a lot of shows together in both the old and the newer bands. But, um, yep. you know, what what was your impression of this period? I mean, the industry was changing. You know, uh, the grunge was in. Record sales were down. I think a lot of the byproduct of maybe these band member changes was also a result of that, too. Right. Yeah. I mean, at that point, a lot of these bands have been together for 10, 15 years. So they're starting to to feel themselves a little bit. I think they've had success. They've been on the road a long time. You know, when you spend that much time with the same amount of people in a band together for that long, you tend to wear each other out. So it seems to be like around the same time, a lot of these bands, like you alluded to, just started to make a lot of drastic changes to personnel and sound. Yeah, I think like, you know, I think maybe first up in the in the in the sequence of these bands was Anthrax. They made the change first. Right. In uh I think it was the early 90s. And. It was funny from what I recall, they had they had maybe come off persistence of time and they signed a big record deal with Electra. And it, and it yeah. seemed like right after they signed that big deal with Electra, they fired Joey Belladonna. And it's no secret. This was this was in the making for a while. Right. This was uh, not something that um, maybe had a, a, a direct impact of anything that he maybe did. But I think they were looking to change their sound. So, um, I mean, what a kick in the nuts to that guy, right? He, I mean, like you said, Vince, he started their career, got them off to groundbreaking, you know, success. And then as just as they're getting maybe leveling off due to the industry, they they throw him to the street, you know. But 
they bring in uh, Johnny Bush of, of Armored Saint, of course. And, you know, listen, uh, I know Anthrax and the guys, they go on record saying they were following uh, John Bush for years, trying to recruit him. And it was just a matter of could they actually pry him away? And what's your take on this? Because I think of the four bands we're talking about, this was the one that had the biggest impact on the sound of the band that really changed from what they were to what they would become. Oh, huge. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's funny because, you know, you go back and you listen to some of the, you know, John Bush has always been a man that was a, a wanted band because Metallica early on had considered, you know, trying to recoup him, but he was happy in Armored Saint didn't want to leave his boys, which, you know, kudos to him for not doing it because Armored Saint put out great material. But <clears throat> I know that you and I had discussed this before. The Bush era anthrax, for me personally, is is some of my favorite music. And it's no knock to I love Among the Living and Spreading the Disease and stuff like that. But th that era, and I think it was at that time too, they they made just enough of a change in their sound, but the temperament that uh Bush brought with his singing and the way that he sang, you know, he sounded distinctly different than Joey Belladonna. You know, Joey Belladonna had that higher pitch voice, you know, Bush always had that, that mid tone kind of gravelly, almost like he smoked cigarettes, but I don't think he ever smoked. And then he could belt out these notes, you know, that would just be like, wow, he just peeled the paint off the wall and the uh, writing, you know, I mean, the other thing that was a, uh, I think that was a casualty to the whole, probably from the dismay of everything that had transpired, was after they um, do uh, Sound of White Noise, is uh, Danny Spitz, you know, leaving the band, you yeah. know, and, uh, you know, it, but I still think that, you know, everything that they did at that particular point, you know, and being somebody that was knee deep into, you know, Pantera, at that time, um, it was like perfect. You know, it was that that kismet, that same level of heavy and groovy and dark and, you know, bouncing and, and everything. It just had a different kind of vibe to it, but it was still anthrax because they still had those moments. And I told this to you before, they always have had that ability to have that New York hardcore come out, you know, yeah. even with you know, with the, the stuff that they did with Bush, you know, all of a sudden now it comes out. It's like, there it is. There's the agnostic front. There's the mad ball. There's all that good stuff. So I think the sound of the band really changed. I almost look at it when I look back at the John Bush era. I, I almost think of it as two different bands. I mean, you you mentioned, Ian, it's, it was like a subtle change. I think it was a drastic change. I mean, Vince, you know, you you I know you love some of these CDs. Like, talk about some of the songs or the albums. Like, what was your impressions of uh, you know, when they came out with the sound of white noise, like when you heard only for the first time or Potter's Field. Well, I mean, James Hetfield called only the perfect song. So that's a good start when you're starting out with a new singer and a new sound. Um, but I was listening it today, and if you listen to it, it's a very, very angry album. It's a lot oh. of self-loathing, a lot of uh mistrust, yeah. a lot of contempt yeah. for people. It's um, one of the lyrics is I never gave a damn. I was never even a fan. The only thing that brings me smile is your pain. If I ever had the chance, I'd kick out your chair just to watch you dance. I mean, 
that's one of the happier lyrics. It's yeah, just right. a very angry album with a lot sure. of mistrust, like invisible with fake friends. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it was a great album, but when you really get into the lyrics, it's, it's super dark. Listen, they went commercial though, as well. I mean, only was the single, but you know, room for one more. I mean, that had, that had legs. Um, Sure. It was on on FM radio at the time all the time. I mean, that was like a your short three and a half to four minute had melody on there. Um, you know, high pro I mean, glow, high pro glow. I mean, Black yep. Lodge. That was like almost yeah. like a dark kind of mysterious song. You know, so there was a lot yeah. of stuff out homage there. To Twin Peaks, wasn't it? Yeah. What's that? It was an homage to Twin Peaks. Yes. Big fan yep. of Twin Peaks. So. Yep. You know, but then you let's say yeah. you go into um, Stomp 442, right? I mean, that came out a couple years later. I mean, that one again. What do they come out with? Another radio song, Fueled. So it was oh, weird yeah. how Anthrax. You know, they were on the MTV in the late '90s with Anti-Social and a few of the other songs, right? And they were getting more of that mainstream play. But now they're back with another singer and a whole different sound back on FM radio and, and MTV yet again, right? So, uh, Ian, did you have any chance? Did you see them live with Johnny Bush? No. And, you know, I, I kicked myself in the ass for it because I missed that when it came through. Um, they played, I believe it was uh, Utica uh, at the Odd, um, right around the same time that the whole debacle with um, Pantera and Manson on the one tour where they just completely destroyed the seats in the auditorium and they said, yep, that's it. We're not having any more heavy bands here. And it was a while before they allowed anybody big to come through, but Stom 442, man, you had Pantera on this side, Metallica, you know, black album on this side. They all found that ground down the middle where they were able to kind of fit that bill. Anthrax did it. Megadeth did it. Slayer tried to do it. Not as well. So the, out of the big four bands, they all were making an attempt to be a little bit more acceptable, approachable, you know, digestible. I don't even know what word to put on it, but the stuff that they were coming out with, I I appreciated it because when you were driving in your car and you got sick of hearing Kurt Cobain crying about something, next thing you know, Anthrax comes on, you're like, okay, now I'm happy again. But and what it did to a lot of these changes to the bands, it gave them something to talk about, something to advertise, right? It was something they could call out to say, we got a new, we got new blood in the band, um, you know, rebirth of the band, whether it was true or not. But it gave them something to go out there and call out, right? And then everybody was intrigued and wanted to see them live. I mean, I recall going out and the first time they played New York, it was. I think May of 1993, they played a place called the Grand in the city and uh, mm. Gene Simmons showed up and they played She with Gene oh, Simmons. Yeah. And Gene yeah. just walked out on stage in street clothes and grabbed the mic. And, you know, Scott Ian is like half his size right underneath him. But listen, they they got on some big tours. I mean, they toured with Fight mm -hmm. in, in, in the middle years. They played oh, over and over and over in all the cities. I saw him later on with Monster Magnet. Um, you yeah. know, so, so they were around and they were, you felt oh, yeah. their presence all the time, you know? Sure. Um, I don't know, but like, I actually, one of my favorite metal albums of all time is I love volume eight. I think that album oh, is great. just top to bottom. It's yep. got it all. It's heavy. It's got a groove to it. It's got melody to it. Um, yep. it's really, really good seeing that one. So, yep. you know, Thrashy, that album dark. Is a little all over the place though. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I listened to it today. I, I really enjoyed it. It's another one of those where I, the more I listen to it now, the more I enjoy it. 
Man, that yeah. album is all over the place. But yep. a song like Catharsis, right? Catharsis oh, and Crush. Like Catharsis is Crush is amazing. I mean, that's just a heavy, heavy, <laughs> heavy yeah. song. You can't take a song like Catharsis and put that no. back in the in the Joey Belladonna catalog. It doesn't fit. Bottom line, no, it, it doesn't work. fit. Kind of went MOD and SOD too with the 604 and the cup of Joe. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say, but and that's where the hardcore comes back into play a little bit. But you know, the one thing, you know, you could tell that um there was that relationship with the band helmet at the time back then. You know, you know that, you know, with Frankie going off and playing bass with them for a minute, you could see where a band like that, because they were that alternative metal kind of side, um, not really grunge, you know, a little more prong or tool, you know, dark and kind of moody. Um, you can see where that may have rubbed off a little bit on these guys too, spending time with them. And of course they were friends with the guys in biohazard and, you know, so I, yeah, the, the, the entire collection, those four albums with John Bush, I hold them in a higher regard. Absolutely. Because- I- there's the Pantera connection too, there, right? Because wasn't Don oh, on all yeah. four of those albums? He played, he soloed on all those albums. So they were yeah, out. Of well, I know specifically on the two, yeah. uh, and then um, yeah, because uh, Cadillac Rockbox and um, Strap It On yeah. from We've Come for You All. He he soloed on, and then obviously you know uh, King Size from uh, Stomp Four Four Two. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I think we could all agree. Like, you know, uh, if we're if we're going to look fondly about one of these bands and what they did, I think the Anthrax stuff is unanimous. Oh, yeah. it, it, it was good. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I, I remember they in the 90s, there was kind of these re- weird touring packages because things were changing. And I remember specifically there was a period where Motley Crue was touring with Anthrax. And I think that was the infamous tour where maybe Scotty and jumped over. George Steinbrenner in uh, in the in the Tampa stadium and he stole home plate and got arrested and whatever. I think it was on that tour. But um, moving over to Motley Crue, oh, right <laughs> now, th- this one, I think we're going to have a bit of a different perspective on this one. I mean, um, you know, Motley Crue, biggest band or one of the biggest bands of the 80s comes out. They hit into the 90s yeah. like everybody else. Drug fueled, infighting, too much money, too many drugs. You know, Vince Neil quits or maybe they say he was fired. It doesn't matter. He's out of the band. And, you know, there's nothing left of Motley Crue in 1992, 93 or so. So they go out and they recruit John Karabi. So who's John Karabi? I mean, who the hell is he? Let's be honest. Who's the band, the scream he came from? Like, do any either you guys know how they got him and why he was picked to go into Motley Crue? Well, Story goes, so Bruce Bollet, who was the second guitarist in Racer X with Paul Gilbert, he was the guitar player that that started the screen. It was he and um, John Karabi was the singer. And these guys, Tommy and Nikki, had seen uh, Karabi with the screen on the strip. They had heard the song played on, uh, I don't know if it was uh, KNAC or one of the L.A. stations, one of the singles that they had released and they thought, man, this guy's got a great voice and they heard who the band was. So they went and they checked them out. Well, just happened to be that, you know, at that time, you know, this is a really unknown band. It's that tumultuous time, early nineties, 
you know, long haired heavy metal guys are kind of passe because the grunge stuff is coming in. So they took a shot. They asked him if he wanted to join up with the band. I will say it's probably one of the best decisions that they ever could have made in their lives. Why so? Personally. I don't remember anything, anything about that Motley Crue album other than John Karabi eventually went on and played with Rat. And he's kind of just one of these C-level guys that, you know, he played with Bruce Kulik eventually, Union and whatever's. But like what? Like, Vince, do you know this album? Like, was it good to you? Um. I, I definitely liked it. Um, it was a it was a change of sound, like we've alluded to a couple of times with all these bands. Uh, to me, it sounds thicker. Um, Tommy Lee and Nikki were just super tight on this album, in my opinion. The, the drums and the bass kind of really stand out to me, and Mick just lays in just these really fat groove um, guitar licks, and Karabi's voice really fits the, fits the songs. I mean. There's a couple of really good songs on there, man. Like Hooligans Holiday obviously was a single. Uh, I really dig Misunderstood. I think in a different time, that probably would have been a very big hit for this band. Yep. Um, Smoke the Sky kind of gives me a, a kickstart my heart vibe. Yep. Um, I mean, it's a little long. It, it probably could have lose some, uh, lost some songs. But overall, it, it's if an, if this came out with a different band name on it, I think we'd be hi- holding it in higher regard. Right. And... Lance, to your credit, Glenn Hughes singing backup on the song Misunderstood, being a close friend of John Karabi's from the scene. Okay. So he knew the guys. He knew John. He knew Nikki. He knew all those guys came in and sang backup. I will tell you, and I said this on the history of metal, during this time period, because there was so, it was such a crazy time musically. You're talking, this is 1994. So there's a lot of stuff that really kind of hadn't coalesced yet. You know, you had a couple things that were going on and a couple things that really weren't going on. This album is so dark and brooding and that perfect time snippet for that period, just like the, the anthrax, just like the stuff that was going on with Pantera, just like this, all those bands, it was so heavy, you know, and, Karabi, you know, lending, you know, playing rhythm guitar and writing songs with Mick Mars. I mean, songs like Uncle Jack and, you know, Vince said it, Smoke the Sky, Hammered, Hammered, oh my God, is such a freaking slow grooving, heavy riff. And then just to keep all of the old hair meddlers happy, they have a song on there called Poison Apples. And it sounds... Sounds just like something off Dr. Feelgood. It's great. Yeah, right. Vince could definitely have sang that if they decided to put it into the setlet. Well, maybe not anymore, no. but he could have sang <laughs> the song back in the day. It, it's that it, it sounds like old Motley Crue. Yeah. But but it's, so it sounds like you guys enjoyed it. And uh yeah. but it 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 changed the sound of the band, but ultimately oh, it it didn't succeed. you know, Anthrax succeeded yeah. commercially, their career True. grew. Little by little, they got back up at the top again, whereas Motley Crue it it didn't do anything commercially, but again, that was a time sign of the times. And, sure. you know, with those hair bands, you take out the main singer, that's hard to sell an album. And then you change your sound, right? It was um, all about this. I mean, there was, yeah. there was, you know, there's lots of funny stories to say they would be touring and they'd almost be giving tickets away at their local radio station just to try to get four or 5,000 people in an amphitheater. But I right. mean, what ultimately happened because they only did one album. 
Like what happened? Why, why, if it was so good, why didn't it continue? Well, and I, like I, that's why I alluded when I did this with the scratch, you know, I mean, there was talk at the time of, you know, because right around the same time after they got done touring with this album uh, was when Nikki got the rights back to Motley's music. So they held their catalog in their own hands. So any money that was made was Motley money. So they started, um, you know, then the, the the bubbles started percolating, you know, and it's like, okay, maybe we should try to get this thing going again. I think at that point too, you know, it'd been a little bit of time water under the bridge. These guys spent so much time together messed up that when they finally had a chance, okay, let's see if we can maybe kick this thing off again. I'm not a big fan of the material. I was mentioning events offline, you know, um, the stuff post the, the Motley Crue album with Karabi. I don't like Generation Swine. I, I don't care for that album. Um, Saints of Los Angeles and stuff. Yeah, it was all right. I did see them on that tour, uh, you know, pre-Saints of Los Angeles when they came around. That was pretty cool. Louder than hell. You know, I mean, I could hear, we were up in the uh, uh, balcony at the um, in Syracuse. And Mick Mars's guitar from the stage was so loud, I could feel it hitting me in the face. That's how loud it was. And not PA, the stacks of amplifiers. I'm like, holy Jesus, this is loud. My ears rang for two days afterwards. Well, Ian, hold that thought, because I think we want to come back to that after we talk about all four bands. And we want to okay. talk about just why these replacement uh, singers didn't sustain a long period of time. And eventually it went sure. back to the original singers. That'll be sure. for a little bit later. But um, sure. moving along, I think um, let's talk about Iron Maiden, right? I mean, the biggest metal band in the world, maybe um, globally, aside from Metallica, uh, sure. you know, they come in. And, and to me, this was the one that maybe disappointed the most. And it may not even be necessarily the quality of the material, but something just didn't add up with uh with with Maiden with Blaze Bailey. I mean, okay, let's think about what was going on at that time there, right? I think uh, Maiden came off Fear of the Dark. Uh, yeah. Bruce had some success, some commercial success with the solo album Tattooed Millionaire. He had recruited yeah. Yannick Garris to play guitar in that tour. He eventually yeah. comes in as a band member, replaces Adrian Smith. Adrian goes solo. There was definitely some stuff in the air in the Maiden camp. And then what I... Kind of um, I kind of lost track of this until I was rereading it earlier that um, Bruce actually left the band, but agreed to do the remaining tour dates in 93. And they'd build it as a farewell tour. You know, right. now here in, in 2013, you know, 2023, we can't even imagine there being friction within the Iron Maiden camp. It just doesn't seem possible, but apparently was back then. Right. So now um, they go out. I think uh, Steve Harris had his eye on Blaze Bailey all along because they had toured with Wolfsbane in the early 90s. He's another British guy and that kind of thing. And he liked him. So knowing those kinds of guys, they probably didn't they probably didn't try out 10 guys. They brought him in. He did the trick and that was it. So um they come out and they release their first album. They they released two albums. Vince, I know you have an opinion of this material. So talk about what this meant to you and the songs. Um let me sum it up the two albums in in one little tidbit here. The song The Angel and the Gambler. There's a refrain. Don't you think I'm a savior? Don't you think I could save you? 
Don't you think I could save your life? In a nine and a half minute song, that's repeated 22 times. To me, that sums it all up. The, the material is DOA, in my opinion. It's it's unoriginal. It's uninspired. That first album, where are the guitars? I, you don't hear anything. It, it's Exactly. The songs are all about uh, isolation and war. And going back and listening to both these albums, there's, there's nothing I want to go back and listen to again. And who opens an album within an 11-minute song? It, it, it's it's just, it's inconceivable. It, it, it goes nowhere. I, I can't not dislike these two albums more. <laughs> I, I hate to be that guy that just bashes the, the new singer, but these albums do nothing for me. But- it, it's just... And I agree with you, Vince. I, I, but I, I disagree with you, and I agree with you because the one thing I don't like about the X Factor is it started them off on these epically long seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven minute songs. They haven't gotten away from it. That they haven't. Yeah. And let's be honest, guys. I mean, as much as their latest material is is good, it also it you know how many of these songs do we really need that go on and on and on with the Celtic mid pace thing? Um, you know, it, it it just it broods on and on. But I do like songs like Man on the Edge. I think Sign of the Cross uh, is a good one. And uh, the, the Klansman and the Klansman. Right. I mean, and the Klansman. Yeah. The, the last tour they were playing last fall, they're still playing they're a playing couple of these songs live yeah. with Bruce singing. Yep. So you can tell yep. that they like them. I you give know? them credit for that. At least they acknowledge that period in their past as opposed to some of these other bands. But. I'm sorry. They just the, those songs drag. I'd, I'd rather listen to the the four other Iron Maiden songs they could fit in the time frame that those two songs take. They don't do sure. anything for me. I mean, re, re, yelling freedom over and over again. Yeah. Eh, nothing. Oh, uh, Ian, Ian, what's your take on on Blaze Bailey though? Forget the the songs. I think we agree there on the songs. I but what about Blaze Bailey singing? You know, and I think at first it kind of took everybody aback because. Unlike one of the other bands we're going to talk about, they didn't get somebody that had that kind of approach or a similar approach to their singing or ability in their singing. Like Bruce, he sounded distinctly different. He had a totally different voice. So that right there kind of you're like, well, hold on a second. How's this going to work? Iron Maiden, I mean, he's going to sing, you know, Flight of Icarus. He's going to sing, you know, Power Slave. You know, he's going to sing these songs, you know, with this, you know, this big voice. But the next part of it was he just didn't have the energy. You know, there was an energy that that Bruce conveyed, even on record. You know, I mean, we're used to seeing him running around on stage and, you know, being able to be, you know, acrobatic and insane. But it was very lackluster. Not that he sang bad. It was just very lackluster. And to, you know, like Vince said, he writing the lyrics with Steve Harris. Did they have a maybe there was a lack of inspiration for what they wanted to try to do? Because some of the lyrics just kind of fell flat. There was nobody there to rein in Steve Harris either. I mean, it was obviously these two two albums are missing Adrian and Bruce in the worst way. And I don't think anybody had the nuts to say Steve. We got to shorten so many songs or we got to pep them up because there's nothing there. Yeah, Yeah. I'd agree. Now, thinking about the touring aspect of this, I mean, you know, I remember Bruce was out on the Balls to Picasso tour and he had Adrian Smith on his touring guitarist. 
And they kind of crossed paths over a couple of year period. It was maybe 96, 97, somewhere around there. Um, they were both out on the road at the same time, or at least the same couple of years. And right. there's a club that Vince and I have gone to in the past is no longer there called the Birchill nightclub. And both bands played the Birchill nightclub. And mm-hmm. I remember Iron Maiden it, played it on the X factor. I mean, Ian, this place was, I mean, Vince, what did it hold? Five, 600 people, 700 people at most. I'll never Absolutely. forget the night seeing Maiden. It was a weeknight and it was so crowded in there. I couldn't even get up the stairs from the outside <laughs> because you got to the top of the stairs and you, I think I was sure. at, the second stair down, not really seeing the stage, it was that many people there. And this was still wow. when you could smoke in clubs. But sure. just to think that, like, Iron Maiden's playing a, like, a 500-seat bar? Like, what? It, yeah, you know, I think it was sad t- Sorry. I think it was okay. sad times for a lot of bands, you know, for a minute. You know, um, not consistently, you know, but, like, when you had a situation like this with, with Maiden, I think that they just, you know, the tires fell off the vehicle and they were kind of stuck, you know, and then, you know, you, you got to make money somehow. You decided to put it out on the road. You better pay for it. So, yeah. I mean, even that second tour, they, they only did 18 dates in the U S so that kind of, oh, yeah. yeah. it wasn't going anywhere. Sure. So, wow. That was yeah. that. So Vince, I mean, I, I know I saw the show at the Roseland with Dio opened and that was a whole nother thing. I mean, Dio fell prey to the same period of time sure. where he's now he's opening for iron maiden at roseland you yeah, know that's and nice. and it's and it's not selling tickets anywhere 18 right. shows in the states what does that tell 18 you shows was the whole u.s tour and i don't even think the whole tour itself lasted longer than six months sure. that the virtual x or uh, x on whatever you want to call it yeah, <laughs> yeah. F- the one with future real on it so yeah right well I, guys i think we agree that again maybe there's some good songs that came out of this but overall it wasn't what we'll remember Iron Maiden for. So, hey, guys, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to get into maybe the feel-good story of the replacement singers. And then we're going to also talk about, ultimately, what turned around that they went back to their original singers. So stay tuned. We'll be back with you in a minute. I'm Metalhead. Metal Mayhem ROC is the home for metal from the very beginnings. This is James DeVere from Hellstar. You're listening to Burnomatic. Dave Overkill from the Cleveland band Destructor. Hey, Dave, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. It's a longtime headliner. Hey, this is Red Beach from White Snake. Hey, this is Vinny Apathy from Dio, Black Sabbath, and Last in Line. To music of today. Hi, this is Olaf Wickstrand from Enforcer. Hi, this is Braun from Mastodon. You're listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. With John the Vernomatic Burner. Plus, we talk with producers and authors to give you behind-the-scenes info. Hi, this is William Merwin, author of The Meaning of Metallica, Ride the Lyrics. Greg Renoff, the author of the book Van Halen Rising, and the uh, Ted Templeman book, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Metal Mayhem ROC. A proud member of the Pantheon podcast team. Giving you more to listen for. Join our community. And always remember to keep it heavy. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons... 
Or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. I'm here with my co-hosts, Ian O'Rourke and Vince McDowell. We're talking about the replacement singers of our major metal bands of the nineties. So guys, there's only one band left to talk about, and it's the big one here. Uh, Judas priest, right? Um, I think this is the one that maybe had the biggest success overall. It had the biggest hype. I think it came with a great story. And uh, ultimately these guys made a, a nice career with uh, Tim Ripper Owen. So, Ian, what was going on in the priest camp? that uh, let's say Rob Halford decided on his own to exit. Cause this wasn't a, this was a different situation. This was not, you know, tensions in the band and things of that nature. Yeah. What was going on with Rob at this headspace at this time? Well, I mean, I know that it was, you know, around this time when Rob decided to, you know, come out of the closet and let everybody know that he was gay, which Scotty and, you know, bless his heart. I remember years ago on one of the metal documentaries saying he goes, as if, you know, he goes, there's a guy running around in assless chaps and, you know, bondage wear and everything else. He said, he goes, huh, how funny is that, that all of these masculine macho guys are banging their heads and screaming for Rob Halford, who's gay. But, you know, I mean, to his credit, you know, Rob, you know, I think wanted to try something else. He wanted to take some time away. He wanted to be Rob rather than being the lead singer, Judas Priest. And, um, you know, they, I mean, he fortunately was able to turn around faster to do something on his own than Priest did, because it was good, what, four years before you really heard anything, three, four years. 
Um, and then they finally, you know, put out uh, new material with uh, with Tim the Ripper Owens. And, you know, we've had discussions about this. Do I think that that body of work is terrible? No. Is it my favorite priest? No. But I think that there's still some good material that did come out of the, those albums with Ripper. And you're right. I mean, think about, you know, you're talking one of the biggest heavy metal bands ever. I mean, guys that changed the the face of metal. You know, another one of those bands that comes after, you know, the Sabbaths and stuff that cultivated and shaped what heavy metal was to become existing during this time period and doing it fairly well. You know, I mean, the, the, the material that they put out, they were, you know, they were still hanging in there tight and there was nobody kicking them off stage for sure. Now, before we get into the material itself, a couple more points on Judas Priest. I mean, again, they came back with a rebound album on Painkiller. I mean, it's no secret Turbo and Ram It Down were, you know, probably not their best commercial right. successful albums. Their reputation was kind of in the clunker at that point, but they they turned it back around. They had that big U.S. tour with uh, Megadeth and Testament and Alice Cooper in the summer um, yep. Operation Rock and Roll. And I think that one threw us for a curveball. You know, Rob... Rob shaved his head. You know, he had the, he had the tattoo on his head. He looked cool, yep. a cool video for painkiller. And then, you know, again, Vince said it before. It was like Pantera was the rage and everybody wanted to be with Pantera. Rob Halford was no exception. The Buffy, the Vampire Slayer movie soundtrack they do like comes out of black. Right? right. He does it with Diamond Vin. Right. That prompts him to say, I want to do something heavier. I want to step away from Priest for a little while and do a solo project. And I think the. You know, the British guys, uh, KK and and Glenn probably said, well, what the fuck? We don't do that stuff here. And right. and off it went. Right. So, right. you know, it was a weird time. They had also coming off that period of the um, the Reno court case for those kids that had shot themselves sure. and, and passed away. Rob was angry at this time. Right. And like you say, it wasn't just yeah. the coming out of the closet. He was angry and it came sure. out in the music. Um, right. But, you know, we're not talking about Rob here. We're talking about Ripper. So. Vince, um, tell the story. Like, how did Ripper? How did Ripper get into the band? Uh, long story short, I believe it was a, a search for singers, and they found him out of a uh, Judas Priest uh, cover band or tribute band, however you want to call it, called British Steel. Uh, someone passed the video along, I believe, right, and it was seen by the members of the band, and or Scott Travis, I think, played a role in it as well. Yeah, and uh, yeah. yeah, then it went from there. Imagine that, like a VHS tape takes, you know, somebody hands it and here you go. Check this guy out. Uh, where's Judas Priest? Oh, I don't know. Rob's out doing fight. Oh, well, maybe they mean a singer. Like, I wonder if they are actually looking for a singer or somebody just said, here, check this tape out. Right. Right. And here comes Ripper. But um, the album Jugulator, I, uh, I, I know, I think we have maybe we may have some mixed opinions on this one. Um, Vince, what's your what's your overall take for on Jugulator? Uh, I think they tried to outfight fight. If you want me to be honest with you, um, definitely the the guitars are were were amped up. Um, I don't think there's many songs on this Jugulator album that wouldn't have been out of place on that fight album, or one of them at least, either Small Daily Space or War Words. Um, I think they saw what Rob did, and I just think that they they took it that formula and said, let's put our Judas priest spin on it. And it went from there. I, I, I really think that they just tried to outfight fight. 
in my no, opinion. It's that's actually a brilliant perspective on that. I think you're completely <laughs> right because this was a heavy album. I'm looking at the CD. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, you know, being a Priest fan, even this, I was like, holy shit, this is heavy. You know, the title yeah. track, Jugulator, um, Dead Meat, Death Row. I mean, and just think of the like, listen to the the topics: decapitate, burn in hell, yeah. brain dead. Right, like. You know, it was like it was really, really heavy, like beyond just thrashy, you know, new wave of British heavy metal Judas Priest. Um, right. So, Ian, what was your take on on this album? Well, yeah, you know, um, Vince said it perfectly, you know, but I, I, you know, this goes back to that. Just, you know, the conversation we just had regarding Motley Crue um, and Anthrax for that time period, you know, you're talking that early to mid nineties shift, you know, you saw Halford do it with his projects, you know, and you were right. You know, I mean, he was, he was angry. He had, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on, but that there was an impact, you know, think about what had occurred, you know, Pantera played with priest in what 90, 91, uh, uh, in, uh, Europe, Moscow. Right. And then they did the, uh, they played again with Metallica, you know, so you had all of these big bands, all of this heavy, dark or darker music plotting more, you know, methodical, more uh, diabolical. Everything was doing it at the time. And these guys jumped on the bandwagon. I personally don't particularly care for both of the albums that much. There's a handful of songs that I think are great, but I didn't like the fact that you have an album like painkiller, which you and I have discussed before. I mean, that is like a, one of those quintessential albums. They come in with this. And as much as I love heavy metal and as heavy as this was, it was too much of a deviation from what the priest sound is. When you hear what they started when they came back later on, it sounded like that evolution post painkiller for Priest. This didn't, but just like you had said before, sounds like new new singer, new band kind of thing. You know, you almost wonder if some of these bands should have said, "Yeah, we're not going to call it Judas Priest. We're going to call it this," but then they would have had no no teeth in the in the sales. So. And and initially, when Jugulator came out and they went on the road, and I saw it, I think two or three times, um, mm-hmm. I was excited because I was curious. Number one, who is this guy? Sure. And I yeah. was still on the high of fight. I was still on the high of painkiller, and I'm like, this is Judas Priest. And it was like, you know, the odds were against them. This is like, you know, uh, let's see what this new guy guy has. And they they capitalized on that. You know, sure. it was it was the replacement singer from the tribute band, but he didn't look like Rob. But, right. he, you know, and then they nicknamed him the Ripper off of the song, you know, and it was like, you know, Glenn and KK just pointing at him. Look what our new guy can do. It was like he was right. in the spotlight. And I think the shows were energetic. Sure. You know, they did. Oh, of course. Classic two hour set of all the songs you wanted to hear. Plus the new stuff. I mean, I saw them at the Roseland, a few other places, Hammerstein Ballrooms. Now, and compared to the other bands we were talking about, Priest was still playing at least a little bit bigger places, right? They were playing bigger places than Maiden, if you think about that at that time. Now, right. in this day and age, it's the opposite. You know, yeah. Anthrax wasn't playing big places like this. So Priest was still sustaining themselves. Um, sure. I think the second album fell flat. Uh, Demolition, I think, is I don't go to Demolition ever. 
I remember the song One on One, the single that came out. It was just meh at best, you know, tried to be a little poppy, catchy, radio friendly, just fell flat. And now at that point of their career, now they're playing the clubs. I saw them up at the Chance in Poughkeepsie, you know. Oh, really? Small little tiny place, which, by the way, the Chance just played its final show ever this past weekend. Doors are closed. I saw that. Yeah. So I think even uh, KK even admitted to the fact that on Demolition, he half-assed it. He 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 had a feeling that the album was going to go nowhere, and he said that he basically put very little effort into it. That being said, I think Hell is Home is a banger. That's it's a, a good song. Yeah, yeah. A great song. But yeah, yeah the rest I, of it, like the, like some of these other albums, they they just suffer from being too long. Like there was this point in oh, the yeah. night where like every band thought they had to yeah. put an hour out uh, length album out. Yeah. A lot of these bands could have just condensed to like a 45 minute album and and they would have had much better albums but they just had to fill the space of cds and they had to put 15 songs 16 songs over an hour and it just drags like you you can't fill that much space and be that you know well the one one thing that you're starting to see at this time with with the cd world is where we grew up you know coming from the 70s and the 80s into the 90s album formatted or formatted recordings, eight, nine, maybe 10 songs max. Once you started getting into that CD and and those bands were putting albums out a little bit more consistently. Once you got to this point later on, especially in this situation, these guys didn't have the draw. So they had to try to recoup some money and maybe take a year or two to try to recover and then come back out and see if they could do it again. So you had material that would hopefully carry people over as long as the next wave of something didn't come in and completely blow them off the shores. Um, yeah. I, you know, the one thing to uh, you know, on demolition, I thought it was a killer starting track with machine man, you know, That's exactly- Scott Travis coming in, you know, that freaking double kick, you know, and the, and the riffs. But again, I remember listening to it again and I'm thinking to myself, I go, it, doesn't sound it sounds more like um death metal than it does Judas Priest because of the way that they're playing the guitars. It doesn't have it doesn't have the same kind of rhythm, you know, uh and 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 melodic flow, you know, where a priest, you know, it'd rip your head off, but you could, you know, it's like, yeah, you can feel the groove to it and you want to move. So overall. Hey. Not terrible. Look at look at what it did for Ripper, though, right? So ultimately, oh, yeah. it doesn't last. He goes on to play with Iced Earth, Ingve Momstein, mm-hmm. solo projects, you know, on and on and on. Dio Disciples. I mean, the guys made a I mean, last year he put out an EP called uh, Return to Death Row. He wrote with Jamie Jasta from Hate Parade. It's great. And he wanted to go back to really? the sound of Jugulator. It's a five song yeah. EP. And it, it's it's right off the, the same sound, the really heavy tracks. But um yeah, so that's Judas Priest, but guys, you know, we got to wrap this up here. But what we want to talk about now is what ultimately happens, right? Now, these guys, they get their cup of coffee and maybe dips up and down a little bit. And ultimately, all four bands go back to their original singer. So since we're on Priest, you know, Ripper leaves in 2002. I think it was maybe a year or two later. I don't remember the year. All of a sudden, the news comes on that Rob Halford's rejoined Judas Priest and they're up going on the Ozfest. Listen, I don't know. It's probably no secret. 
you know, it, it ran its course and they knew the only path forward was to get Rob back. Rob had tried fight. He tried to, he went and did the, the Halford band with resurrection, which did well, but ultimately he was been being the clubs or you get back to playing amphitheaters and arenas. Right. And that's what led him back to today. Sure. Um, Maiden. I mean, Maiden probably the same. I mean, I, I can't remember guys. When did Bruce rejoin after blaze left? I think it was the brave new world Wicker album Man. probably. Right. Yeah. 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 Wicker, Man. Wicker Man was the first. Uh, yeah. first oh, summer. and they had done a tour before that though. I think they did a tour. Oh, I don't know if it was the somewhere back in time tour 99, they played clubs and then it turned into doing the album. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. I, I, it was right around. Go ahead. Sorry. Ed Hunter or something. Was it yes. Video? Ed Hunter. Yes. The Ed Hunter yes. tour. Correct. That's right. As, and that was one of the, that was one of the first big appearances I think that they did down in South America too. Right. Was that on that tour? As well, because it was, I think that was one of the things that helped kickstart them at that point where you realize that classic Maiden, as we know it, is that big and it's that renowned worldwide. But yeah, it's, you know, I don't, you know, the the whole thing with Maiden seemed like it, it was destined to happen. When Halford kept going from project to project, it almost seemed like he was on his own path, but then all of a sudden he's back with the band. No, and, and, now, and the, the Halford band opened up for Maiden on the Brave New World tour because right. they were the opening slot uh, before Queensryche. Yep. And I, you know, didn't, didn't I didn't have a book that uh, in Halford's book that it was more of a miscommunication between the, the them. Like he never oh, really sure. wanted to quit the band, but yeah, somehow got lost in the sauce, and he just ended up out of the band. So, yeah, yeah. So I guess he just. I mean, Ripper said it the best. He said, "Rob needed Priest, Priest needed Rob, and I needed to do something else." So they just yep. came to a mutual agreement, and he was back. Yep. Yeah. And and I don't think there's any bad blood there. You know, with you know, I think that anything with the Priest guys is water under the bridge. But I think with Ripper, with with the guys in the band, I mean, I don't think there's any animosity. No. I mean, look at how fast he joined up with KK when, uh, you know, KK's uh, priest, you know, came about. You know, I mean, KK knew exactly who he wanted. That guy. I think that's. I think it's kind of a middle finger to the priest guys, don't you think? Well, that too. You know, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he doesn't get Ripper in there. He's got no product. Let's be honest, right? Yeah. Right. True. Yeah. You know, and then the the Anthrax guys. Um, I I don't remember Vince. I know I was at the show at Starland. I found the 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 Joey the Joey Belladonna reunion show. If you remember, oh, uh, what year was it? Early early two thousands or so, where it was a one off. They were like, oh, they're playing the Starland Ballroom with Joey Belladonna, and they're going to play one show and record a live DVD. And I was like, the I first actually time was, I was ever there, right? And yep. you're right. And I actually I remember being almost offended. I was like. Why would they do this to John Bush? Like the guy put out so much good material and what makes this like what makes this appealing? Like I, I went and it was good, but I almost felt like angry about it, you know? But there was and a that, period of time where Anthrax couldn't get out of their own way. I mean, between bad labels and yeah, there was what, what a, a couple of years span where they had Bush in the band and Belladonna came back and then Bush came back and then they had that. Weird Dan Nelson period. Yeah. And I think Joey came back again. Yeah. Corey Taylor was rumored to be in there. Yeah. It's. Yeah. I feel like it's like a contractual thing with 
Belladonna. I feel like they literally are just business partners and that's it. And let's be honest, right? Okay, they've been back together for 10, 15 years. What have they put out? Two studio albums? Right. They're good. They're good, but like five, six years in between. At least Priest is continuously do album tour cycle, reinvent themselves. They get back on the road. They play different set lists every leg of the tour, you know, but... did the big four thing that that had to have sped up the whole process too, right? I mean, they were, they probably wouldn't have been on that bill if it wasn't Joey back, right? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Right. So that yeah. probably helped a lot too. <laughs> I think that you know, a lot of people maybe underestimate the control and the ego that um, Scott Ian has. You know, I, I love Scott, but I think that he kind of is the one that points the direction for the anthrax machine to go and then he'll discuss it with charlie you know and then ultimately frankie you know when he came back to the band you know and you know whoever the 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 lead guitar player is just a lead guitar player and then we've oh we'll have joey sing it you know that's basically what it looked like don't get me wrong for all kings slam an album oh my god i just i yeah. I remember when it first came out, I was like, wow, that's classic anthrax right there. Worship music too is a banger. Worship music too is great. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, that could have led up to it, but I, I do think though, you're right, Lance. I think that they really did a disservice to John Bush because I think that John Bush put out a lot of great quality material with them and helped get them to an entirely different level, yeah. you know, because they were playing, oh, yeah, all right, they were known as Anthrax. But then when the 90s came in, well, they were known as Anthrax. But then Bush came in and it went like this. They were up playing on this other level. So, And we, listen, there's not much to say about Motley Crue. We knew there was only one other path forward. Vince comes sure. back in. They stick around. They're another band that can't get out of their own way. They put a couple albums out. They've toured. They've retired. They're back out there. He's fat. He can't sing. They're playing with tapes, you know. <laughs> Nobody cares about Motley Crue. Listen, let's be honest. We love the other three bands. We don't like Motley Crue. But guys, this has been a a great episode. Um, I really thank you for your time. And, uh, you know, listeners, we welcome you to check out these episodes. Please go to our podcast channels. Uh, Check us out on YouTube, the Metal Mayhem ROC YouTube channel, and all of our socials out there. So for my co-hosts, Vinyl Vince McDowell and Ian O'Rourke of Motorlord, this is Metal Walt. And remember, keep it fucking heavy. See ya. Peace. Metal for Life. Thank you for listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. Check out our website at MetalMayhemROC.com for information on podcasts, archives, links to all our live radio shows, and all sorts of info. Please like, follow, and share with everyone, even your non-metal friends. And always remember to keep it heavy. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.